Good evening. Well, this evening we continue in Second Chronicles. You can turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles in chapter 33. We're going to just be in chapter 33 this evening. We just studied the history of good King Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings that ever ruled over the kingdom of Judah. There are a few really good kings, and he's at the top of the list. He had had a very wicked father, and he had had a very godly grandfather. But his father Ahaz had done some wicked things, and Hezekiah, contrary to the example of his father, honored God with his life, with his heart, and in ruling over the kingdom. But now his son takes over, and his son's name is Manasseh. And it's debatable, but one could say that Manasseh was maybe at least one of the most wicked kings of of the kingdom of Judah, uh, if not the most wicked. But one of the beautiful things about the account of Manasseh is that it shows us the power of repentance. Because you see, someone can be incredibly wicked, and if they cry out to God and ask for forgiveness, God will forgive them. Amen? And restore them. How many people have we heard share their testimony? And you're hearing them share their testimony, and you can hardly believe they're the same person. You hear about the things they did from their own mouth. They talk about the way they acted and the wicked behavior that was a part of their lives, part of their character. And then they share with you their love for God, and you think, something has changed here. I think of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. But there are many examples of people that we know who have been very wicked and yet repented and received the grace of God. The good news is about our account this evening, as we study the kingdom of of Manasseh as, as king of Judah, is that he was one of the most wicked men, but he's the best example of repentance of all the kings of Judah. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our ability to repent, to think that we can cry out to you, ask for forgiveness, and you will forgive us. You'll cleanse us of all sin, purify our hearts even, and make us right with you. May we be reminded of that truth as we study the life of this man, and may we be encouraged to know that there's no one in our lives, no one in this world, who is not so far from you that They can't turn to you in repentance, cry out to you, and be forgiven and be healed. Remind us of your loving grace, that it's greater than the greatest wickedness that man can accomplish. Your love conquers all. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by looking at just verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 33, we read that Manasseh was 12 years old. When he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. That's a long time. A long, long time. He inherited the kingdom of Judah from his father, Hezekiah. Now, he, of course, became co-regent. I've shared this with you before. Co-regency was practiced by the kings of Judah for a lot of good reasons. But he became co-regent in the 18th year of his father's reign, and he became sole monarch when his father died in the 29th year of his reign. So his father Uh, Hezekiah ruled for many years, but this man would rule for even more. Interestingly, his name means forgotten. Forgotten. And I want you to know that that can mean something really bad, but it can also mean something really good. For example, if you've forgotten about God and his goodness and his word, if you've forgotten the truth of Scripture and you've forgotten all that God has done for you, that's a bad thing. And so that accurately describes Manasseh at the beginning of his reign. But toward the end of his reign, his sins were forgotten. His old nature and his past was forgotten. And that name actually honored God in that he could think of himself as forgotten. Yes, God has forgotten my wickedness because I've repented. So when we think of his name, it has two meanings. One describes his former life, his old life, and the other describes his new life. And I think it's fair to say that each of us have that same experience. We have, been, uh, we have been probably in a moment in our lives where we had forgotten the goodness of God, or at least didn't know the goodness of God. And maybe we felt forgotten by God. But then there came a point when we gave our heart to Christ, 
And God forgot, if you will, our past. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Gone. Forgotten. The new has come. Hallelujah. So I want you to think about that. When you think about Manasseh, remember that his, his name means forgotten in Hebrew. And it really is an accurate key word to describe his life. But he reigned as king, as we've said, for 55 years. He was only 12. He was 12 years old when he became co-regent or crown prince. He became the fifth consecutive Judean prince to begin his reign in this manner. Because of the wars, because of the conflicts, they didn't want Judah to be without a king. And so that there would be these uh, crown princes, co-regents, who would reign as king alongside their father. And they would do this for the sake of the kingdom. Now, he was Hezekiah's only son born before his illness. Some people, some people don't understand co-regency, and so they, they come to the conclusion that he was born after Hezekiah's illness during those extra 15 years that God gave him. But the truth is, he was born before that. He was the only son that he had born before his illness. He was eight years old when his father was given another 15 years to live. And there's this no doubt is what prompted Hezekiah to appoint him co-regent just four years later. The man knew he was going to die. We talked about this last week. The man knew he had 15 more years. Of course, he appointed a co-regent four years later, within four years. This man, Manasseh, was 23 years old when he became the sole monarch after his father died. So a, a good age, actually, after having spent a number of years as, as a, a co-regent, reigning alongside his father, you would think he would have picked up a thing or two from a good and godly man like Hezekiah. We're told in Second Kings his, that his mother's name was Hebzibah, and you've probably heard that name before as well. But Manasseh's relationship with the Lord is pretty, pretty robust uh, in terms of the description. His relationship with the Lord was that of rejecting everything he knew to be right. That is, we have a a very graphic description of just how he not only wasn't really in a relationship with God, he went the other way. Now, we know people that love God, and we know people that say they love God, or maybe they're not bad, they're not good, they're not necessarily godly, but they're not the Antichrist either. But then, you know, there's some people that are so wicked. It's like they go the exact opposite way of righteousness. So you've got righteousness and then wickedness, and they go in the direction of wickedness. We see this in the world. We see people all the time in the world who seem to be given the platform to espouse their beliefs and promote them. And the things they promote are just so wicked. And you think to yourself, my goodness. What happened in that person's life? What trauma occurred that this person would not only reject God, but, but literally go the exact opposite way? Well, that is an accurate description of Manasseh's, if you want to call it, relationship with the Lord. It was really one of animus, one of hatred toward God, or at least one of rejecting his goodness and his grace, as exemplified by his father. I want to read uh, through verses, uh, let's say verse 2 through 9, just to give you a taste here. We're told in verse 2 of Second Chronicles chapter 33, but that Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. That would be the Canaanites. They were incredibly wicked people. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles, and he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Himmon, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers, 
if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. That's quite a description. Would you agree? I, don't, I think it's fair to say. I don't think you can, you can come to a conclusion that this man just went bad. It's more than that. There was something at work here where he had given his heart completely to wickedness, to evil. And I'm sure you'll agree, there are some people that do that. They, they literally give their hearts to wickedness. Now, whether they're demonically influenced or satanically inspired isn't really the point. The point is they look at wickedness, and I think all of us as sinners have, have an attraction to sin and wickedness. Uh, any sin that's selfish and brings pleasure into the life, there is a certain attraction to it. Uh, everyone struggles with that. But this man embraced it and made it his God. And the things he did, I mean, my goodness, he, he didn't follow the example of his father, who was fully devoted to the Lord, but he followed the detestable ways of the Canaanites. Now, what that tells me is at some point in his life, in those 23 years leading up to when he became sole monarch, he was exposed to the wickedness of the Canaanites. Would you agree? There was something that he either witnessed or was a part of or experienced that caused him to not only be attracted to wickedness, as all of us are, but to embrace it and really worship it, give his heart to it completely, surrender his life to it. Now, in this world today, when people are exposed at a young age to certain types of sins, it kind of imprints on them. Some people move on. Some people process it properly and reject that trauma or that experience, whether it was a tragedy or some abuse, sexual or emotional or physical. And they move on. And, and, and they're not that they're better for it, but they move past it. But some people get stuck in it. I suspect, although I don't know, that Manasseh got stuck in it. There was something he was exposed to, something that happened in his life. I don't think you can blame Hezekiah. I think there was something that happened that just this man, it got his heart, and he never, ever let it go, at least not until God intervened. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know people like this who are just caught up. It could be uh, some type of sin like drug and alcohol abuse. It could be sexual sin. It can be thievery. It could be all types of things. People who just live their life taking advantage of others, scheming, con men. I mean, when you look at people like this, I mean, there's some part of their soul that's been fractured. There's something wrong with them. Mentally, spiritually, psychologically, they're damaged. And unless they get help, unless they're brought to the understanding that God forgives and God can heal, there's no hope. But praise God, there is hope. Amen. And Jesus, thank God. The first thing he does, think about this. The first thing he does in verse 3, he rebuilds the idolatrous high places within the kingdom of Judah. Now, this was a place where people would go to worship. They were altars of convenience. Some people went there to worship false gods, and some people went there to worship God. But according to the word of God, they were supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. There were, no, there were, there were not supposed to be any uh, sort of altars of convenience. These little places where you could worship God, you didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. And there certainly weren't to be any high places where you could worship all these false gods. Hezekiah, to his credit, was one of the first kings to do this. In many, many years, he destroyed them all. So what does this man do? His son, Manasseh, he rebuilds them. He erects altars to Baal, one of the false gods. Uh, and he made an Asherah pole, another, another god. Uh, you, you can learn a lot about these false gods, but that's not really the point here this evening. They were false gods that promoted wickedness. And so he erected altars to Baal, made an Asherah pole, just as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, who was a very wicked king. And he worshipped, as it says, all the starry hosts through his idolatry. Those would be all the false gods, various different false gods worshipped through paganism, and that we're familiar with if you study mythology. And really not just the gods, but what they represent, the wickedness and the vices. And he desecrated the temple of the Lord. And there you see there's an anger, a hostility toward God, clearly. He wasn't content to just let the Lord and his people be. He wanted to, to destroy the temple. 
And he built idolatrous altars within the courts of the temple. And he, as we're told in verse 6, provoked the Lord to, uh, to anger by all the evil that he did. And is God angry with evil things? Yes. He's angry with evil people. Yes. And in our world today, there are many evil things happening and many evil men and women in power. And God is angered by them. So if you feel anger when you see injustice in our world and in our nation, God is angry. When you see abuse and wickedness running rampant in the land, God is angry, you're angry. See, you have the heart of God. You have the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that these things would also anger you. But remember what God says. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And this is why we look to God to get involved in this world. We cry out to God to get involved. We don't take matters in our own hands, even though we may feel we want to. So the anger we feel is normal and natural to feel that way because we have the heart of God. But we have to restrain ourselves from getting in the flesh when God has not called us to. So this is what this man did, all of this evil. Now, one of the worst things he did, he worshipped Molech. That was the detestable god of the heathen around them. He worshipped Molech. And he did this by sacrificing his own children in the fire. We've talked about this recently when we studied the life of Ahaz about a month ago. What would happen is those that worshipped Molech would discard their unwanted children by killing them as soon as they were born. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't speak on the subject of infanticide and abortion. Because it clearly does. It angers God. You can't read this scripture or any other scripture dealing with the subject and not come to the obvious conclusion that abortion or infanticide is murder and angers God. There's simply no room for debate. And those that might call themselves Catholics or Christians and still believe in this barbaric practice of ripping children from the womb are not Christians. They're not what they profess to be. They're as wicked as King Manasseh. It's not to say they can't repent. But what they're promoting is evil, and it angers God. It angers me. It should anger you. Infants at this time were placed in the arms of a molten image in the valley of Ben-Himmon where they would throw the garbage. They treated their children like they were garbage, and that's exactly how people, some people, treat children today. Whether they're in the womb, or whether they're born, or they've grown up a few years, people treat children, sometimes they abuse them like garbage. And it angers God. And I can't wait, to be honest, till God gets involved in that whole injustice. We see God working in some ways in our world today, but we need more. We need, we need the hand of God to deal with this injustice in a mighty and terrible way. And when I say terrible, I mean just a way that everyone can see the hand of God. And I pray for it all the time. But this man, Manasseh, gave himself over to occultic practices as well, desecrating the temple of the Lord by placing an Asherah pole, a symbol of a false god, within the temple. And it says in verses 8 and 9, he led the people of Judah astray and away from the Lord. You see, when a wicked ruler is in charge, they lead people astray. They lead people away from the Lord. Now, you can have a leader that's great and a good leader, doesn't necessarily lead people to the Lord. You can even have a competent leader that leads people away from the Lord. But when you have a wicked man or woman who leads people away from the Lord, there simply is only one thing you should pray for. Number one, really, is that they repent. Now, of course, if they don't, then God's going to judge them, and that's just fine with me. The people ignored the Lord's promises. They rejected his word that they received through Moses, and were told they did more evil than the Canaanites that the Lord had driven out the land. So God had driven the Canaanites out of the land for their wickedness and brought the Israelites into the promised land. And now these Israelites, these men and women of Judah, we're doing worse things than the Canaanites. So you can see where this thing is going. 
You know, when I think about our nation, the people that were living in the United States before Western civilization, or if you will, the uh, European civilization, came here, um, didn't know God per se. They weren't necessarily all good or all evil. They were people, and they lived here. And I, I think it's fair to say that some of the people that came to North America and South America and Central America came with very wicked purposes, and some of the people came with good purposes on a mission to reach people with the truth. But for many years, this area of the world, the Western Hemisphere, has been the center of sharing the gospel throughout the world. And it's been a place where God's word was held in high esteem, for the most part, until recently. Over the last few decades, that has changed. And I think it's fair to say that we probably are doing things that are worse than those who didn't know God, who lived in this hemisphere before Christians got here. So what's God going to do? Well, God will either destroy us and judge us for our sins, if he so chooses, or we'll come to repentance and be blessed. That's really the only options we have. And I pray that we do come to repentance as a people. Things are getting worse, and that's a good thing, because when things get worse, people look up and say, what's going on? And they have an opportunity to hear the truth and hopefully respond to it. But we've got to get rid of some of these wicked leaders first. But that's God's business. That's God's business. And we'll see that's exactly what God did here. (laughs) Anyway, so the Lord spoke to Manasseh. Now, this is interesting because you would think at this point God wouldn't bother, right? I mean, would God bother speaking to somebody this wicked? Well, the answer is yes. Look at verses uh, 10. We'll read Actually, before we, yeah, a couple of things I want to mention before we go. I'm not going to jump there just yet. We do know this. In 2 Kings 21, I'm not going to turn there. In 2 Kings 21, verses 10 through 15, that portion of Scripture tells us that the Lord did speak to Manasseh, and he spoke through many of his prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Micah. They spoke to this man. They proclaimed the Lord's judgment against the kingdom of Judah for their many sins, told them that they would be destroyed just as the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed. Remember, Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. Also, the house of Ahab was destroyed by Jehu, king of Israel, in 841 B.C. God's judgment had come upon the northern kingdom in the past, and we know that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by Babylon between 605 and 586 B.C., but that hasn't happened yet. They could have been destroyed then and there had it not been for his repentance. That is the repentance of Manasseh. And I think it's true to say that as a nation, we may be destroyed if not for the repentance of God's people and others who become God's people. I happen to believe that what God is doing in our nation today is leading us to a place of repentance. Now, I can't control, you can't control, we can't control what the outcome will be, but we have an opportunity. That that, that I do know. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if we do, God will heal our land. Amen? So that's the message. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I'll tell you what. God is a gracious God. And we can count on that. God's grace. Now, the Lord had been extremely gracious and merciful with the kingdom of Judah for the last 760 years. What Manasseh did, and 2 Kings 21.16 tells us, there's much written in the book of 2 Kings on this, but I'm just going to summarize it for you since we're not in that book tonight. We're told that Manasseh actually purged the kingdom of Judah of the righteous followers of the Lord. I guess if they had an FBI, they would have sent them in. The idea is to try to get rid of all of the righteous people. Just, just get rid of them. And they did. Jewish tradition has Isaiah being put to death at the time that Manasseh was king. According to Hebrews 11.37, what's interesting is historians say that Manasseh was referred to as the Nero of Palestine. An incredibly wicked man. Now think about 
Isaiah, they said when he was put to death, he was sawn in two. And it was Manasseh that gave the order. So I'm trying to paint a picture of just how wicked this man was. But the Lord, as I said, was extremely gracious. We read in verses 10 through 13. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't know if I want God to be gracious with a man like this. Yes, you do. Because you are the man. You are the woman. You're the same as he was. Maybe not as wicked, but still falling short of the glory of God. Well, we read there in verses 10 through 13, The Lord Jehovah spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Oh, we're familiar with that. We see that in our world today. The Lord is sharing his truth constantly with wickedness in high places, and they seem to pay him no mind. But notice this, verse 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Jehovah is God. Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful account of God's grace and mercy. And if you're like me, you're thinking, that guy didn't deserve God's grace. Well, neither do you. Neither do I. Neither do we. We don't. None of us do. And so we're told of this wonderful moment of repentance in the history of the Jews. Listen, Manasseh and all Israel ignored the word of the Lord spoken through his prophets. I've already shared with you what he did with Isaiah and how Isaiah and Micah were were ignored. The Lord allowed this wicked and rebellious king to be taken prisoner by the Assyrians. Now, Manasseh was bound with bronze shackles and a hook in his nose. And by the way, that's not like a little piercing, okay? They put that hook in your nose and dragged you by it. Not a pleasant experience. They took him all the way to Babylon. And this captivity probably occurred in the 46th year of his reign, as far as we can tell. He may have been a prisoner there for the next four to five years. But during those four to five years, the man found God. And people sometimes do when they're in distress. So I want you to hit the pause button for a minute. Is the United States of America in distress? Yes. Is the world in distress? Yes. You may not be in distress because you know God. But the world is in distress. I think it's fair to say these last couple years, it's clear, the world is in distress. Our nation is in distress these last two years. What's going on in our nation right now is it's very distressful. It's, just, it's very, very, very distressing. But wait a minute. What does God do in times of distress? He brings the hearts of men and women to repentance. So before you throw off all hope and yell the sky is falling, let me, let me remind you of the kind of work of grace that God can do in times of distress. And let's pray for it, amen? Let's pray for that work in our world today. And so, all of this took place. Babylon at that time was brought under Assyrian occupation. Later it would be controlled by the Babylonians. But the Lord humbled Manasseh Brought him into bondage. Why? To break his will. See, sometimes we're brought into bondage that our will might be broken for God. That our hearts might be broken for God. And so Manasseh finally humbled himself in his distress and repented before the Lord his God. And the Lord graciously restored Manasseh as king of Judah in Jerusalem. That's not fair. Oh, it's so much better than fair. It's the grace of Almighty God to be restored to a place you don't deserve because of his love for you. And when you repent, you simply unleash the love of God 
into your heart and into your life. And that's what it means to repent. Repent isn't a bad word. doesn't need to be edited from the church. needs to be preached from the mountains, from the rooftops. Because it is the true opportunity for us today to experience the grace of God through confession of sins and repentance of those sins. And so the Lord graciously restored this man. He answered his prayer. He forgave his sins. Oh, pastor, how is that possible? Jesus hadn't died yet. Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. That is, in the mind and the heart of God, there was always a path and a way of salvation for anyone who would repent. They always wasn't the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. Those things only pointed to the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And so Manasseh, in his brokenness, now knew that Jehovah, the Lord, is God. May the Lord bring as much stress and distress as necessary into our world and into our culture that all hearts would cry out like Manasseh, even the most wicked among them. That's my prayer. Well, Manasseh was truly changed. He didn't just say those words. You know, some people have a fine Jesus moment and then they don't really change. Not true with Manasseh. I want you to read with me in verses 14 through 16. Afterward, this is after that experience, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of Gion Spring, uh, Gion Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. That's the uh, mount on which the old city was built. He also made it much higher, and he stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the Temple Hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah, that is the people of Judah, to serve the Lord Jehovah, the God of Israel. It says the people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So they used the altars of convenience, but no one was worshiping any of those false gods anymore because of the leadership of Manasseh. So what did he do? And this is how you know he's, he's a changed man. Now, now, you understand, when someone, especially a leader, a person in authority, is truly repentant before God, here's what you can expect to happen. That individual will promote the welfare of the people he's governing. Rather than raising taxes and taking advantage of them and making their lives worse, the leader will do what's best for the people and try to help them. And this is what he did. He fortified the defenses around Jerusalem. Because he had been changed by God's grace and mercy, he changed and therefore his actions changed. You, you repent of your sins. It, it means to turn away, to change your mind, to turn around and go in the opposite direction. So to say you repent and then not change, that's not a true repentance. But this man truly repented. He, built the, he rebuilt the outer wall, significantly increased its height to protect the people stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah, removed the Asherah pole and the idolatrous altars from the temple of the Lord, restored the altar of the Lord, and sacrificed fellowship and thank offerings on it. I think it's interesting. It doesn't say sin offerings. Not that they didn't do that, but a a, a fellowship offering is, is, is an offering that speaks of your relationship with God. And the thank offering is just an offering of thanks to God. You don't offer these offerings unless you love God. And by the way, these weren't even mandatory offerings. They're sort of voluntary. It speaks of a real true heart for God. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord their God and to abandon idolatry. After he promoted it for so many years, he became the crusader who decided to try to get rid of all that he had done over the years leading up to his humbling. He removed the idolatrous images from the infamous high places, although he was unable to remove them completely. He worshipped the Lord, but he tolerated false religious practices within his kingdom, even though they were just simply the practices of worshipping God improperly in the wrong place. He wouldn't allow idolatry, but he would allow that. And so he may have looked the other way while others openly disobeyed the word of the Lord, but he didn't, and therefore he became a, a good leader. I'm not going to go so far as to say great, but he became a very good leader. And that is amazing considering 
his past. And then we read in verses 18 through 20, the other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God, and the words of the the seers spoke to him, that would be the prophets, in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. In his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself, all are written in the records of the seers. It was all documented. And Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace. And Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. So the record of everything Manasseh did, good and bad, has been preserved. Now, the book of 2 Kings does record Manasseh's reign as the king of Judah. And if you're interested in more information, I've, I've summarized some of it. 2 Kings 21, 1 through 18 will give you that information. There's also the book of the annals of the kings of Judah. And of course, that's what we're reading today. We're reading First and Second Chronicles are a compilation of various different sources, including the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah. We have that, or at least excerpts from it. Now, interestingly enough, we also are told that his account is given in the kings of Israel and Judah. And I've already mentioned that's First and Second Kings. But they don't include his prayer to his God. It's not included there. It may have been edited out. We don't know why, but it says here that it was included there, but, but yet it's not included there. They do include the words of, that the seers spoke to him. That's in 2 Kings 21. But what happened to that? Why was it edited out? It, it may have been, it may not have been, but here's what we do know. The records of the seers are included in Isaiah and Micah, two other books in your Bible, and his prayer and how God was moved were included in these records. So it may not have been included in the annals of the kings of Israel, first and second kings, but it is included in the books of the prophets that I've already mentioned. So we have those records. I'm not going to read that, but you're welcome to encourage, I encourage you to read those books of the Bible to get more information. In fact, all of his sins and unfaithfulness were included in these records. And the sites where he built high places and promoted idolatry were included in these records as well. So as the author is saying, we have these records. It's not so much that they're in Second Kings, but that we have them because the prophets have given them to us. The other thing we know is that Manasseh died having led the kingdom of Judah astray for most of his reign until he repented. He had reigned as king for a total of 55 years. However, He reigned as co-regent with his father, Hezekiah, for 11 years before his death. Then he reigned for 35 years until he was imprisoned. And he was imprisoned for four or five years. And then he returned to Jerusalem, and he reigned for four or five more years until he died. So he is the king with the longest reign. However, it's non-contiguous. That is, there were four or five years where he wasn't the king because he was in prison. But still, technically, he was the king for 55 years. This is the longest reign in the history of any of the kings of Judah or Israel. It's odd that a wicked man would be given that amount of time to reign. But God knew the plan. And you you wonder, why would God give someone who's so wicked so much time to repent? Ah, that's an important question. I believe God knows whether or not we'll repent, because he knows all things. And I believe that when God knows a man or woman will repent, he is long-suffering, abounding in mercy, for that's what the scripture tells us, gracious and good, and will allow that man or that woman the extra time they need until they repent. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what a, what a beautiful story, even though it's kind of ugly. It's a beautiful story because it's a story of God's grace, kind of like the prodigal son. Or the account in the Bible, in the book of Acts, of Paul the Apostle. So he rested with his fathers in Sheol, waiting for the coming judgment, buried in the palace garden of Uzzah, not in the tomb of the kings of Judah, interestingly enough. Not sure why, but maybe the wickedness in his life just kind of prevented him or prohibited him from being buried there. We're told in 2 Kings 21, 18, that he's buried in the garden of Uzzah, not in the tombs of the kings. And then his son Ammon succeeded his father as king of Judah. Now you would think, 
that the son of Manasseh would have learned something. But you would have thought that the son of Hezekiah would have learned something. And you would have thought that the son of Uzziah would have learned something. That would have been Ahaz. But you see, every single person has to make a decision for themselves. You're not judged for the sins of your fathers, and your fathers aren't judged for your sins. You and I, we have to make a decision for Christ. Our children have to as well. You can't make that decision for them. I think a lot of parents, Christian parents, want to. They want to shelter their kids, and we understand that in this wicked world. They want to do everything they can to influence them. And when they're young, it's wonderful. They listen to everything you say. Well, not everything, but just about everything. At least spiritually, they're very open. When I talk to the kids under the age of 10, you know, they're not arguing with you whether God exists. They're not disputing whether Jesus is God. They're not speaking about eschatology. They know Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But then they get to a place in their teens where they start to ask questions, and some of them doubt, and some of them defy and reject, and some of them make decisions for themselves. But that is their prerogative. And as we see is the case in the son of Manasseh, this man, Ammon, decided to make a decision for himself. And that decision wasn't a good decision. Let's read. In verse 21 of chapter 33, it says, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased his guilt. I'll just continue to read. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. And then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. That is very interesting because here you have a man that's incredibly wicked, Ammon, but his father was, if not more wicked, at least as wicked. And God gave Manasseh these 55 years as king, right? This guy got two years. Did God run out of patience with Ammon? Or did God know that Ammon would never repent? You see, when judgment comes swiftly, I think it's because God knows that person just never going to repent. So there's hope. If, if God hasn't brought judgment on a wicked person, there's hope. They still have an opportunity to repent. If God takes somebody out quicker than you can bat an eye, you have to stop and say, well, Clearly, God brought his judgment because he knew that they would never repent. So you have to, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You have to trust God with his judgment. Well, why did he give Manasseh so many chances? And he didn't, don't, don't go into that kind of thinking with God because God knows all things. From the beginning to the end is the Alpha and the Omega. So Ammon ascends to the throne. You're inheriting the kingdom from his father, Manasseh when he died in the 55th year of his reign, Ammon reigned these two years, just 22 years old when he became king. Remember, his father was taken to prison in, in Babylon. That was when this man was just 13 years old. Whatever happened in this man's life must have been traumatic as well. However, he didn't respond to God's grace. His mother, we're told in Second Kings, was Meshulameth. And This man was given every opportunity that every other king was given, but his relationship with the Lord can be described in this way. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the example of his father Manasseh before he repented. Before he repented to the Lord. His father's repentance didn't undo the influence of his many years of wickedness. So sometimes the damage we do to our children or to our loved ones or to the people around us, that damage we can repent of and be forgiven, but that doesn't mean that that damage didn't leave a mark on the people we love. You know, you can be an alcoholic for 50, 60 years and then give up drinking and and live the rest of your life, a couple of decades maybe, loving God, honoring God, but those 40 or 50 years of damage you brought into your family and into your surroundings, that's lasting. 
And not everybody gets over it. And I think what happened here, just my observation, is I just don't think Ammon ever got over it. It would have been nice if he could have, but he didn't. His father's repentance didn't undo the influence of his many years of wickedness. He worshipped all of the idols that his father had worshipped, repeated all the mistakes that his father had made. You know, it's interesting. When you speak to someone who grew up in a, a home where one of their parents or both of their parents abused drugs and alcohol, uh, you would think that that child wouldn't go anywhere near drugs and alcohol, given the trauma that it caused in their lives. Does it surprise you to know that the exact opposite thing is true? It's also true with physical abuse and sexual abuse and emotional abuse. We have a tendency to repeat the things that were inflicted upon us and the things that we were exposed to at a young age. God can break that cycle through repentance, but trust me, it's a powerful draw on the soul. And it's sad that people would do the very thing that was done to them or would copy the same behavior that traumatized them as children. It's almost like they don't know any better. It's because they don't. Well, this man forsook the God of his fathers, Manasseh, in his later life, and Hezekiah, his grandfather. His father's testimony didn't motivate him to repent of his wickedness. He refused to humble himself before the Lord, and he increased his guilt, we're told. Increased his guilt. That means the more someone tried to reach him, the worse he got. Now, the prophet Zephaniah, another book in your Bible, recorded the moral condition of Judah during the time of Ammon's reign. And these were not good times. After a a reformation, if you will, under Manasseh, after so many years of wickedness, for the next two years, they go into another state of decline. Can we relate to that at all in our world today? Or have you been asleep the last two years in our nation? I'm encouraged to know that God just gave it two years and then he took this guy out. I'm not saying it's a prophecy. I'm just saying God can bring his judgment when and where he will. If there's going to be repentance, we pray for repentance. That would be wonderful. But if not, we pray for swift justice. For the sake of those who are being harmed by the leadership of these wicked men and women. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we trust God and his judgment. Well, Ammon's reign in death, we've already read it. He was murdered by a conspiracy of his own officials. They weren't going back. They weren't going back to that same time when things were so awful that they had just recently lived through. His own trusted advisors refused to return to the spiritually dark days of his father's reign. The people of Judah justly executed the officials responsible for killing the king, but I don't think anyone missed this man. And then Josiah was made king by the people of Judah at the age of eight years old. Now, what does that tell you? He wasn't ruling at eight. But the advisors of the king and the godly people who surrounded him raised up Josiah, and I'm glad to tell you, he became one of the best kings of the kingdom of Judah. Well, the record of all of Ammon's other accomplishments has been preserved. Just like Manasseh, the book of 2 Kings, records Ammon's reign in 2 Kings 21. And then, of course, we have First and Second Chronicles. We have... Uh, all of the information that we've studied here. But Ammon was buried also in the palace garden of Uzzah, not in the tomb of the kings of Judah. So that seems to be the place where they would bury kings that were not considered to be godly men for most of their reign. And then Ammon's son Josiah succeeded his father as king. And we will pick up our account next week in the next chapter, chapter 34. I am so encouraged to see the hand of God work through repentance. It is one of the greatest, most wonderful things you can experience for yourself or witness in someone else. Redemption. Redemption. The word means to buy back, to purchase. It's like you've incurred a debt that you could never repay. And someone comes along and says, I'll pay that debt. And in paying that debt, they free you from the burden that that debt had upon you. And that's exactly what God has done for us on the cross. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Remember that song? I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of the lamb. I mean, those are the words. Do you need any more words to worship God? It's about all you need to say. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. As we worship God the remainder of this week and into Sunday, and as we continue to worship the Lord over the next few months, as we wait for God to bring his judgment on the wickedness and bring people to their knees in repentance in our nation and in our culture and throughout the world, continue to pray that God will be both merciful and gracious, but that he would also be just and bring his vengeance in due time. Basically, I guess I'm encouraging you to to trust God. Trust God. He doesn't need your help or my help to judge He he doesn't need us to tell him how to run the universe or how to deal with Congress or Washington or blue states or these lunatics that are mismanaging our great nation. I trust God. We've seen it in the life of Hezekiah. We've seen it even in the life of Manasseh. We've seen it in the lives of others. God is more than able to lead us as a nation just like he was able to lead Judah as well. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, We cry out to you on behalf of our nation and our people. There are many, many godly people in the land. You said you wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain if there were ten righteous people. Fortunately, there weren't. Just a handful, but not ten. But I know there are more than ten righteous people in this place this evening, let alone in our nation. So on behalf of the people that are wicked, we cry out. We pray that you'd bring them to repentance. We pray that you'd save our nation. That you do with our nation as needs to be done. And help us to trust you. We trust you, Lord. We pray that you would get involved in the things that are harming people today. From the child in the womb to the elderly person in the nursing home. All of our nation needs you to be involved Raise up men and women in leadership who are godly or at a minimum respect and revere you and deal with those that hate you and despise you and promote wickedness and evil. Lord, we cry out the way Hezekiah cried out in the temple of the Lord to destroy the Assyrians. We pray that you would destroy the Assyrians of our day and free us to serve you and to worship you freely. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.